Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll spend our time. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this series, we've been learning how to become a highly effective church, and that, according to Acts 2.42, our prescription there, what we find, is that we have a prescription of devotion. That's how we become a highly effective church. Uh, The facts are still on the table in almost every area of our life that the way to become effective in any area of your life is through devotion. Uh, It is not to be understood in some sort of legalistic fashion, but I think I can make that clear to you as we move forward. But our prescription is devotion. It's a continual devotion to the apostles' teaching, which shows us that we are saved by grace through faith and that we walk according to that path, right? But we are, uh, we are prescribed to a continual devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, uh, and that uh, is faith and practice, as we learned last week. The component of fellowship, though, that we have begun to discuss is much more uh, than the nebulous idea of fellowship that the world has, just just getting together with people. So what we do in order to discover that or in order to understand that rightly is that we go to the scriptures and we, and we start to parse through them. We start to understand, exploring them, what God says about genuine biblical fellowship. And what we've concluded is that it is marked by two really important characteristics. But Acts 2.42 told us this, as plain as the words on the page, right? Uh, Acts 2.42, Luke tells us that fellowship is, is uh, indicated or marked by breaking of bread and by the prayers. And last week, we shared that breaking bread, according to the four gospel accounts, that breaking bread according to uh, Acts 2.42 uh, and the uh, day-to-day meal sharing of the church uh, after Pentecost, that uh, breaking bread according to the 1 Corinthians 11 context, which we're going to spend a lot of time in today, are comprised of both a meal and the communion elements. It is not one or the other, but it is both and. And this is something that I am uh, willing to speak with a a measure of confidence, a a great measure of confidence, that the church has missed for a great deal of time. And I don't say those things lightly because, again, who am I? Some, uh, Some guy in the middle of Ohio coming up with something that says the church has missed this for a while. But the truth is, just because we've held to traditions for all of our life doesn't mean we've done it right. This is really important for us to understand. Uh, many times we miss, uh, we miss what the plain reading of the text would say, and we miss it because we're obsessed with going along with tradition just for tradition's sake. Although this biblical expression of fellowship will most assuredly include more than a meal and the communion elements, such as prayer, which we're going to talk talk about next week, it most assuredly will not contain less. It will not contain less than a meal as well as the breaking of bread. Now, I said this last week, and I want to repeat it again. Hanging out with fellow Christians is a really cool thing to do, isn't it? 
right? But what principle governs that we should hang out more often, even if it is not the defined understanding of biblical fellowship? Why should we get together? Why should we spend time with fellow Christians? The biblical principle that governs this idea is that bad company corrupts good character. We don't want to be spending our time intermingled with darkness. That's We may be on mission to them. As a matter of fact, we are on mission to them. But uh, we are to spend our time loving one another and encouraging one another and building one another up. So hanging out with Christians is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that in particular. But we have to understand that what constitutes biblical fellowship requires the Bible to establish the parameters. Amen? If we're going to do it God's way, then we need to do it God's way. And the image that I gave you last week was that if you want spiritual abs, (laughs) you have to submit to a spiritual diet. You have to submit to a spiritual regiment of exercise. And just like in life, there are no shortcuts to this. There are no shortcuts. Uh, we, We struggle with this deeply as a church that we want the results that God promises. We want all the promises of God, yet we don't want the method by which those promises come. There are things that are in your life. Listen, this is, I know this is challenging for some. There are things, the scripture tells us, it's a New Testament principle that says that there are things in your life that do not happen because you do not spend that time in prayer and fasting. Did you know that that's a thing in the New Testament? That is a statement that is made in the New Testament. And that's a hard pill to swallow because we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be saved by grace. And so we say, that's all requirement. Sounds like legalism. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do any of that. God says, this is what I've commanded. How about you trust me? How about you trust me? In view of mercy, God expects a lot of things of us in our life. Amen? I wish, I wish we really held on to that. But what has happened is we've, got, we've gained a perverted understanding of grace. And that has led us to this idea of license. License says I get to do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want because why? I've been set free. That's foolishness, church. It may, it may be that you are free, but not everything that you do is profitable. Not everything you do is beneficial. And so we need to come back to God's table and we need to listen to what God says. There are, again, no shortcuts to what God has called us to. So today, I want to offer to you a bigger vision for why fellowship, uh, through the breaking of bread, biblically understood a meal and the communion elements, is not only a good idea, it's required. It's what the scripture Uh, communicates to us. You see, it's one thing to teach a more robust practice of an idea, uh, to tell you, here's a couple cooler, uh, cool details that you need to add to to your faith or to your ideas. So a more robust picture. But without a why, without understanding why, what will happen is we will slip back into our old ways, won't we? I would, I would argue that it's, not only, uh, it's o- not only likely, it's actually necessary that we will slip back into our old ways. And here's why. Because we're creatures of habit. Unless we have a vision, unless we have a value that brings us forward in our life to something greater, we're going to stick to that same old tradition. And sadly, we we're, we're even run the risk of just dying in that tradition for no reason at all. When we could have life and we could have more. So today, what I want to do is I, I want to, to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 11. And in particular, an apostolic correction that has to do with breaking bread. 
and has to do with this idea of a meal as well as the communion elements. And we're going to start at verse 17, but we're going to look through Act, we're going to look through 1 Corinthians 11, and then we're going to move to 1 Corinthians 10, and then I'm going to cast the vision for all of this by going all the way back to the Exodus and 2 Chronicles and, and all of this picture that God has established for us. It's quite a beautiful thing. So, without further ado, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. These are the words of God. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in, this, in the first place, you, in, uh, you come together as a church. I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, what comes in verse 20 is really important. It's actually a statement of Paul that is spoken in sarcasm. He's actually ridiculing the church for something that comes next. So he says, for there must also be factions, verse 19, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may be evident among you. I mean, we got to know who the super spiritual are, don't we? Do you see what Paul is doing here? And I can prove it by the very next line. He says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. English interpretation of that. I don't know what supper you're enjoying, but it isn't God's. That's what Paul is saying. And so this sarcasm, this, this ridicule gets resolved in 21. He says, for in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first. It's selfishness. And one is hungry. The, the, the least of these are overlooked. And another is dr drunk. And I love the Apostle Paul's statement here. What incredulity, right? He goes, what? That's how you should read it in your Bible. What? It says, don't you have houses in which you are to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. First thing that I want you to see is that the bookends of this section clearly communicate Paul's dissatisfaction with the church. He says, I'm not going to praise you in the way you're doing this. You're doing this wrong, and that's what we need to zero in on, not the criticism, but make sure we assess ourselves and say, are we doing this right? And the answer is, we haven't been doing it right for eons of time, okay? So he says, he says I, I, I'm dis disappointed in you, but here's the thing that I think is worth uh, pointing out. In verse 2 of the very same chapter, Paul praises this church because, and I quote, here's Paul's statement, they remember me or you remember me in everything and home, hold firmly to the traditions. Now the reason that I point this out is twofold, church. Listen to me. The reason I point that out, this out is twofold. Number one, just because we're incorrect in one area doesn't mean we're incorrect in all areas. There are groups in the church that basically make it look like this. You're a horrible, worthless, pitiful, wretched sinner that never can get anything right. But that's simply not the testimony of Scripture. The people were obedient to God many times. But when they were wrong, they needed correcting. How many of you have kids? How many of your kids do some really cool, nice, noble, sweet things? And don't you dare keep your hand down, right? I know your kids. They do some nice things. How many of you have kids that do things that are just downright sinful? You better raise your daggone hands again, right? Okay? So the reality is, though, just because your kids do something wrong doesn't mean you believe they do everything wrong. You praise them for what they do right, and then you correct them for what they do wrong. And Paul does the same thing to the church. The second observation is this, that 
Paul is for the people. Paul loves these people. He has a deep affection for this church. I mean, this church is whacked out at times, but he loves the Corinthian church. In reading Paul, what you'll notice is that Paul often encourages a people group, and then he drops the hammer. This is just a tactic, guys. This is the way you do it. You stand up on a Sunday and say, hey, guess what? I love you. Now, let me tell you how bad you suck. <laughs> okay, so, but Paul, Paul does this, right? In 2 Corinthians, Paul is still dealing with the same church. He's still, de- still dealing with the same chaos that they deal with. And he says this. He says, not that we lorded over your faith. Paul is writing to the same Corinthians. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Isn't that what you want out of a pastor? You want somebody that says, I'm working with you for your joy. I'm I'm here for you. I'm with you in all things. Now look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, for in your faith, you are standing firm. See, this wasn't about their faith. This wasn't about their trust in Jesus. This was about their practice. And here's what I want you to understand. Many times when we refuse to operate our practice, to operate the way God says we're supposed to operate, here's what we do, church. Listen to me. Mark it down. We rob ourselves of the joy of the Lord. He has a plan for you. And it will go well with you if you'll listen to what he has to say. And this is as much me preaching to me as I am preaching to you. Whatever Paul is doing throughout his, uh, his letters, it is important always to remember the heart from which those instructions come. Paul is for the people. He's not against them. So brief pastoral note here, just from me to you. Number, number one. Just because I speak something of correction does not mean that I believe you do everything wrong. I hope you'll get that. I hope you'll believe that deeply in your heart. Just because I stand up here and say, here's where we, here's where you have missed it. If I'm sitting over the table at coffee with you and I say, man, you really screwed up here. Don't think that because I point out one thing in your life, I believe you do everything wrong. It's just, it's illogical. Okay, I wouldn't do that to you, and I would hope that you wouldn't do that to me. The second piece or pastoral note that we learn from this or something that you can uh, take from me is that I am for the joy that you have in the Lord, right? This is what what 2 Corinthians says. I actually want to be a worker with you for your joy. Amen? You want somebody to work with you for your joy, right? You want that. Do you need a Lord over your faith? You don't need a Lord over your faith other than Jesus. (laughs) Trust me when I say this. No pastor, no man makes a good authority or makes a good Lord over your faith. Instead, what we need to do is trust that God has a plan for us and that he has put people in our lives for that edification, for that encouragement so that we can move forward. Whether you know this or not, I am for your joy. But here is a problem that happens in the church. Many people bear false witness against pastors, and they do it a lot. They do it a lot. They go, that guy, he's just a jerk. That's it. I'm leaving the church. I'm going down the road. I'm going to switch until I can. You're never going to find what you're looking for because what often happens is you're so tired of being corrected, you just don't want to hear it anymore. You just don't want to hear it anymore. But here's how you fix that. Knock it off. It's like, it's like, wow, this is complicated. I mean, rocket science here. Stop being stupid, and it goes away. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing, okay? So, pastoral note, I love you guys. 
I know that Barney loves you. I know that Mark loves you. I know that the leadership team here loves you. And what we want is for all of us to walk in joy. So what's the problem in Corinth? Well, Paul goes on to say that the way the people are coming together is actually for the worse and not for the better. How so? The answer is disunity. In everything that you read in these two chapters, 10 and 11, you're going to find, and hopefully you can see it already, you're going to find that the grand picture that Paul is addressing is division or disunity. Although the manifestations of that disunity are many, the issue is clear. Paul actually takes aim at this issue beginning all the way back in chapter 8, and arguably he takes aim at this issue at the beginning of the letter. But we're going to focus our time on 11 and then on 10. So uh, how uh, chapter 11 begins is really powerful. Paul gives a rather challenging teaching on biblical hierarchy. This is an interesting thing. If you've never read 1 Corinthians 11, the first half of it, you need to read it, you need to study it, and you need to wrestle with it. Because here's what Paul does. He offers a challenging teaching on biblical hierarchy, which includes an obscure teaching, a hard-to-understand teaching, on women and head coverings, okay? And although people have debated this issue ad nauseum, very rarely do I see that people get together and come to the heart of the issue. And here's what the issue is based on the context. The issue is that even though there is a clear biblical leadership structure, right, That's God's design. The problem is, is that the church constantly lives divided. God says, here's how leadership works. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. And the church, for thousands of years, says, forget you. And we go, oh, I wonder why there's disunity. I wonder why there's division. I wonder why there's a problem with this. And Paul actually uses this issue of leadership all in line with his same argument. And his argument is, you guys don't love each other. And it's evident by the way husbands and wives treat each other. It's evident. It manifests itself in women one way. It manifests itself in men another way. So it's really important that we understand what is actually going on here. One of these days, I'm going to be able to spend some time articulating how glory has uh, everything to do with carrying out our purpose both men and women and us as a human whole, as a, as a uh, totality. Because the truth is that when we are together in unity, you know what happens? We honor and we serve and we bring glory not only to God, but 1 Corinthians 11 says that we bring glory to each other. It's a really amazing idea. So Paul is calling for unity among men and women. We miss it. And then he calls for unity in verses 17 through 22 with respect to fellowship. It's all the same point, the same teaching, namely the practice of the Lord's Supper. That's what he deals with. So he points out that the Corinthians have factions among them and that these factions are based on some arbitrary approval. Again, this is pseudo-spirituality. Who's closer to Jesus, right? Who's closer to God? None of you. None of you. You have a relationship with him. Can you abide with him? Can you sit at his feet? Sure. Can you choose what is better as Mary did in the New Testament? Of course. Did Jesus love Martha any less? No. But he cared for her and he wanted her to to know something or wanted her to understand something. So these these people had this this kind of uh, faction developed where they were cliquish. And it's really dangerous. Because church, we can be cliquish in all kinds of ways. 
We can be cliquish in ways where we think we're superior and everybody else is less than. We've got to be careful because the scripture would indicate that we are for the less than. At least that's what I'm concluding from all of this. So we, we have this coming together for the worse uh, at the Lord's Supper, a practice that was designed, as we're going to see in a bit, to display unity, solidarity, oneness in Christ, and uh, oneness inside of his body, us together as a church. So how have they affected the Lord's Supper? And I used that adjective, but I probably should have used infected the Lord's Supper. But nonetheless, verse 20 says this, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Again, remember how we interpret this. I don't know what supper you're having, but it sure isn't the Lord's Supper. Let me prove that to you. When you come together... Where were we at? When we come together, uh, you are not to eat, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Notice this. The people are together, but they're not together. Most, uh, most people would say that this is true even inside of their marriages. You can be in the same house. You can sit on the same couch and not be united. This can and should convict the modern church, though. Uh, sure, we assemble in the same place. We participate in the same practices, the same ritual at the end of the service every week. We take a piece of bread, we dip it in the juice. But do those acts of solidarity necessarily mean that we're together? No. No. It doesn't mean we're together at all. You can actually bet your life we're, we're most likely. We're not. Not even most likely. We're not together. Just because people are physically together doesn't mean they're unified. So, back to Corinthians. Verse 21. He goes on, For in your eating... Each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. And there's Paul's great question, exclamation. What? This may be beating a dead horse, but according to the gospel accounts, according to breaking bread day by day and from house to house in Acts 2, and according to this context, we have a meal that goes beyond the oversimplification of this communion thing that we do on a Sunday morning. There's enough food here. Take note of this. I, maybe you don't read it critically. I'm not, that's not a shot at you. But, but there's enough food here that people are hoarding food and keeping it away from another person. Has that ever happened? Holding out a piece of bread to people? No. No. And look at this. There's clearly enough wine present that some of these people were getting drunk. And this is in the church. So clearly they're not Baptist. Right? <laughs> Right? Amen, right? There's an, this is not one cup sitting on that side of the auditorium. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a meal that's happening here, and this church is not together in any way. Make no mistake, Paul is not here saying that you should not have a meal. He's saying if you're not going to do it right, what are you doing? You're not doing what God has called us to do. So Paul goes on, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? And most people read that line and they go, there it is. He tells them to eat at home. No, he tells the well-off, stop coming and taking from the poor who are among you. He tells the people who have their own stuff, you, if you need to, take care of it at home. But I don't know what you're doing. I think you're missing the point. So Paul goes on. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. 
The problem here is that the people are not unified. And the most unambiguous expression of this disunity is actually in some in a meal gorging themselves or getting drunk while the least of these have nothing. While the least of these have nothing. Now listen, this is not a picture of what we're supposed to do necessarily with the whole world. I just want you to understand this is the church assembled. This is the church assembled, and they're assembling to reflect on God's glory and all that he's called them to do, and they're supposed to be praising him. So they're supposed to be unified, but they're not. The least of these are suffering. Paul calls this despising the church of God. You want to know why? You want to know why? Here's why. Say Dave Arman is sitting right here. Say Dave has gone through a really hard week. And let's just say that we're rewound into that time, and Dave literally hasn't had any food this week. He's not had anything. And we come together, and I'm over here, and I'm eating all the food, and I don't want Dave to have any of it because I really don't care what Dave's problem is. If Dave wants to do this, he needs to work harder. He needs to be a better man. These are all the ridicules that we have, right? And I hoard from Dave, and I keep all this stuff over here. Here's the problem. Is Dave not a member of the very same body I'm a part of? So let's say I'm a hand and he's a foot. Is it wise to deprive the foot of nourishment? Not for long. Not for long. Because if I withhold it from Dave, what I'm ultimately doing is despising the body of Christ. I'm withholding it from me. See, loving him, loving Dave, would be the best thing that I could do in a church gathering. Caring for him. But here's again a shocker. We have made church all about the individual. Why do you come to this church? Well, it speaks to my needs. Why do you come to this church? Well, it has a kid's church that really fits my needs. A youth program that fits my needs. It has worship that I don't want to puke when I hear it, right? What in the world? I'm going to do Paul. What? What are you doing? We've made church all about us, haven't we? I know. You guys are looking at it and like, oh, crap. Here he goes. (laughs) Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not on a soapbox. I'm just speaking from the text. We have despised the church of God because we've made it all about me. That should break your heart. And guess what happens when you get up and you speak that message? Legalist. You have no idea what my needs are. It's just you being a pastor who's disgruntled, who's jealous, who's this, who's that. We'll find out, won't we? We'll find out. I don't want to despise the church of God. I want the Dave Arman. I want him to be cared for. Because he's part of me, right? And I want to change and wreck the whole system that the reason we come into those doors is not primarily about me. Of course I need to be edified. Of course I need to be encouraged. But I can experience that when I'm edifying, when I'm encouraging others. So Paul says, what in the world are you doing? And the answer is, well, we're over here being disunified, Paul. We're over here hating each other. Paul gives similar instruction to this to the church in Philippi. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard regard what? 
Regard one another as more important than yourselves. The psalmist understood God's heart when he said how good and pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Unity is the issue, church. Unity is the biggest why behind why we need to come together with a meal and the communion elements. Because what we're doing is we're saying we are in this together. And that expression... Listen, church, that expression has been the church's expression. It's been God, God's expression. It's been humanity's expression of solidarity since the dawn of time. And the modern church says, eh, let's just go through a ritual. We'll make it work. We're not making it work anymore, church. We're not making it work. It seems depressing to me. So this serves as a springboard. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to put this all in its framework and show you what's happening. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. Those first two lines are intriguing because Paul is dealing with a Gentile, a largely Gentile, predominantly Gentile context. But what has happened in Christ is that they have become a part of Abraham. Jesus said he can make descendants of Abraham out of rocks, right? Every one of us, when we, when we uh, surrender to Jesus and we put our trust in him, we have become those children. So verse 3, he says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same sp- or drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. There's Jesus in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Covenanted people of God. And God goes, you're missing it. I'm not pleased with you. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, and idolatry is one component of this, but listen to what he says. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. You know where that comes from? Exodus 32. You know what happens in Exodus 32? The golden calf happens in Exodus 32. They rose up, they rose up to play, which literally translates God up to indulge in revelry or pagan revelry. Meanwhile, in verse 5, what we see in chapter 32 of Exodus, is that God is revealed that this was supposed to be a feast to the Lord. Now look at what's just happened. A feast dedicated to the Lord, and they've usurped it for their own agenda. Hmm, sounds like communion. Sounds like communion. It's an amazing thing. So Paul goes on, look at this. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That's from Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Numbers 21, 5 through 6. You know what all of those have to do with? The people complaining about a lack of food. Huh, all of this seems connected with your stomach. It's really weird, right? Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers 11, 33 through 34. What was that about? An insatiable craving for meat. The people were missing it. And guess what? They weren't about each other. They were about them. It was all about them. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them. And this is, the, this is the verse you need to highlight. You need to underline. These things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our 
instruction. They disobeyed God and he was displeased with them. And somehow Paul thinks we need to know that. Yeah, because we have a fundamental misunderstanding of grace again. God is displeased when we're not doing things right. Amen? He doesn't imply that we do everything wrong. Amen? But he's correcting us. And guess what else scripture says? He loves those he disciplines or disciplines those he loves. Isn't that an amazing thing that God would love you enough to say, whoa, 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 you're getting it off. Because you know what the step is if you don't get corrected? Read Exodus. (laughs) The step is it gets brutal. It gets brutal. And none of us want that. None of us want that. The point is that we've been given an example of how not to do things. Go on to verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. New Testament, New Testament, New Testament. Never once will you ever read a passage in the New Testament where a a writer says, hey, don't worry about it. You're the warm, cuddly son of God. It's not there. What you do see is a is a loving pastor or a loving teacher saying, take heed of this. Take heed of this. Do not fall, please. Please do not fall. We have a really obscure view of God these days. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. And here's what I want you to know about this message. I am speaking to wise people. You judge what I say. If it doesn't line up, if it doesn't uh, measure out, then fine. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. But Paul writes this correction to those people and says, you're wise. You can figure this out. You know what's happening. Okay? So he says, I speak as to wise people. You judge what I say. Is not, and look at what he comes back to, is not the cup of blessing? which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are, say this with me, church, one body. Say that again. One body. When we don't think about those around us, when we're not unified together, we are despising the church of God. He says, we are many, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Do you know what brings us together in unity? Jesus Christ. And that is all. We are not brought together because of spiritual pedigree. We are not brought together because of uh, your particular understanding of doctrine A or B. We are brought together because his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And that king, that God, throughout human history has said, I want you to come together. I want you to share a meal together. I want you to break bread. And I want this symbol to signify the difference in this dinner versus everybody else in the world. You belong to me. Church, if we see it, it changes everything. Notice the unity language here. This is all in context for what follows in Paul's teaching on idolatry, that is light having no fellowship with darkness, in hierarchy, men and women unified in purpose, although not in function, and lastly, the Lord's Supper, being one body undivided. Being one body undivided. 
This is powerful stuff. Guys, I want to encourage you to read two passages of Scripture because I'm already way out of time this morning. But I want to encourage you to study Exodus 12, verses 3 and 4. I want you to study Exodus 13, verse 6. And I want you to study 2 Chronicles 30, verses 5 through 12 and 25 through 27. Let me read those again for you so that you can study them. Exodus 12, verses 3 and 4. Exodus chapter 13, the very next chapter, verse 6. And then 2 Chronicles 30, verses 5 through 12, and verses 25 through 27. Here's the gist of the story, just so you know. The gist of the story is this. God designated a meal in Exodus 12. That meal was the Passover. That meal was the very Passover that Jesus was participating in or using when he gave us breaking bread and this symbol of what was happening. That meal continued in Acts 2. That meal continued in a largely Gentile context in 1 Corinthians 11 and chapter 10. That meal continued, not Passover per se, but the idea of people coming together, eating together, breaking bread together, and saying we belong to one another. The why behind all of this church is that we have to be unified. The why behind. And there are steps, there are things that God would command us to do that actually draw our attention to unity better than anything else. And one of those ways is through your stomach. One of those ways is through this. Because if you can say no to food so that you can say yes to your neighbor, your heart is growing. Your heart is caring. Your heart is compassionate. Your heart is reaching beyond this. But this symbol continued on throughout the generations. This is most likely why there is some residue of this in the church, even to this day, where people say, shouldn't we have a potluck? Shouldn't we just hang out and have dinner together? It is my assertion that there's something itching in the back of our heads that is calling us to the very thing that God has established us to do. Come together, breaking bread, Biblically defined, a meal with the communion elements, the bread broken, the juice or the wine representing the blood shed, and this statement that is declared over that assembly that says we belong to King Jesus. We belong to one and no one else. We belong to each other. We care for each other. We love each other. This is the call that it seems that we're seeing inside of Acts 2.42. Now, I know that that can be challenging to many because they look at it and say, well, Nathan, if you're, telling me that, if you're telling me that communion, that act, can't bring us to unity, why would a meal do any better? And I wish I had an answer for you. I wish I had an answer for you. But what we do not see, and you have to wrestle with this at some point, what we do not see is Jesus saying, you know, the whole meal thing, that was just a Passover leftover. Let's leave that beside. Now what we want you to do is come up in front of your church congregation, dip a piece of bread into a thing of juice, and declare that you have done some sort of unified idea. It's nowhere in the Scripture. It's nowhere in the Scripture. What is in the Scripture is all of us sitting down together, breaking bread, absolutely loving each other, not ignoring the other half because our table's better or cooler, more spiritual, or better beards, whatever it is, we're not doing that. The idea is we're together, we're unified, right? 
we're together. That's what our call is. So Acts 2.42, the church was dedicated to the apostles' teaching. We've just seen the apostle Paul's teaching on this matter and his corrective. To the breaking of bread, or to fellowship, the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And fellowship, again, stands in opposition to these two features, which is breaking bread, biblically defined, a meal with the communion elements, and the prayers. And we're going to talk about the prayers next week. But church, I, I want to reset. I want to find a way to do it. Where we actually live life together, where we spend that time together, where we understand each other's hurts, we understand each other's joys, right? That's how we share this. That's how we live life together. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.